Well, let's open our Bibles to the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. The 8th chapter of the book of Romans. And as I've contemplated how we can keep Romans uh, moving while not losing people far behind us who are still traveling, um, I'm going to be bringing the results of the work of another man for the most part this evening. That is to say the structure, which I've read through my own grid, and there'll be plenty that's, as Dr. Ferguson says, that's McWilliamish in it. But uh, at the same time, uh, I'm going to be using an essay by C.E.B. Cranfield, who was a former professor of divinity at the University of Durham in England. Dr. Cranfield, um, the late Dr. Cranfield, is not someone who's with us in every way. But he was an outstanding New Testament exegete. And what Dr. Cranfield um, did in one of his really outstanding essays is to summarize what the Apostle Paul has to say about the freedom, or shall I say the freedoms that we have in Christ. Um, So we'll do that for for this time and the next as we move into Romans 8. I think, quite frankly, this will help us to appreciate more deeply the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, but I want to give full credit to C.E.B. Cranfield for the, shall I say, the basic outline of what is to follow. I rarely do that. I don't know if I've ever done it except once when I took this material intentionally and let you know that I was doing it then too. We come to the 8th chapter then of Romans. We'll read together the first 8 verses, but we'll focus primarily on verse 2. Let's pray before reading. Again, Heavenly Father, we come to this great book of Romans, and even though we are summarizing a vast amount of material in these next two times together, with the help of Dr. Cranfield, we ask that you would bless that we might better understand the freedoms that we have in Christ. For when we understand those freedoms, then we live as those who are at peace with God and we understand something about the daily struggles in light of our union with Christ. But also, Father, you help us really to overcome temptation and sin better when we understand that we're free people. So help us to understand the grace of God more and more and more until you call us home and bless this congregation that this congregation will be well fed the word and that we would take in what we here and inwardly digest it and make use of it in our Christian walks. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The eighth chapter of the book of Romans, beginning with verse 1, this is the word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit." To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I look at verse 2 again in particular. 
For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, the Apostle Paul really, in the first five chapters of the book of Romans, dwells upon the theme of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. When we turn to chapters 6 through 8, the emphasis is upon our sanctification. So, the emphasis, and I'm not saying there are not references to one or the other in each of those different sections, but the emphasis that we find in the 8th chapter, this glorious 8th chapter of the book of Romans, is on sanctification or growth in grace. Or to put it another way, the renovative aspect of the Christian walk. That the Holy Spirit actually renovates our lives and changes and transforms us. Now I think I've told you that um, at least uh, I think that if I were on a desert island and could choose one book of the Bible... It would be Ephesians because of its comprehensiveness about certain themes. But if I had to choose one chapter, it would be the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. This is a glorious and wondrous chapter. And one of the reasons I'm taking the approach that I am now is because I think it will feed you and help you. But those who still are yet to get back from summer travels will not miss when we get into the eighth chapter in more depth. So, in Christ Jesus is connected to has set free in verse 2. Paul is saying that in Christ Jesus the authority that is exerted by the Holy Spirit has freed the believer from the authority of sin and death. Now let's take a closer look. Every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. For example in verse 9 of this 8th chapter, you however are not in the flesh but in the Spirit if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has the Spirit of God, is indwelt by the Spirit of God. And in chapter 8, verse 9, but also in verse 6, verse 10, verse 11, verse 13, this is emphasized in the 8th chapter of Romans. Now notice in verse 2 that he speaks of the law of sin and death. What does he mean by that? He means sin's control over us. But then he combines that, sin's control over us, the law of sin and death, with the truth that we have been set free. The verb has set free. And then he places in Christ Jesus along with has set free. So it's Christ who has set us free from sin's control in our lives. The basis of freedom is Christ's accomplishment and redemption alone. And were we to turn to chapter 3 once again, we would find that the propitiatory work of Christ, of course, is the basis of our justification. But we should never forget that His death for us also is the foundation for our continued sanctification and renovation. These two ideas, concepts, truths must be distinguished but never severed from one another. That is to say, the person that God justifies, He also has promised to sanctify and to grow in grace. If someone is not sanctified, then he has not been justified. Grounding anywhere else but, but in the work of Christ would lead us to despair. And when we are going through the process of sanctification, we constantly need to look back again to the work of Christ for us and the foundation in our justification. The you, by the way, in the Greek text, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. The you is in the emphatic position. You have been set free. 
to challenge each of us to grasp the significance of the gift that is ours in Christ Jesus. So how does this, having been set free, work its way out in everyday Christian experience? Well, let me remind you again that the context in which we find these verses must relate back to what we saw in the seventh chapter and our struggle with sin. 8-2, verse 2 of chapter 8, cannot be separated from chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, which we saw, if you will recall last time, does not refer to the unconverted but to the converted. When he speaks of the struggle that we have with sin, at the end of chapter 7, he is talking about the believer in Christ. We know that because he says that this is the person who wills good and hates evil, chapter 7, verses 15, 16, 19, and 20, that he delights in the law in the inner man, verse 22, and no unbeliever can delight in the law in the inner man. And because also this person serves it with his mind, the second part of verse 25. This could not be said of any unbeliever. So those who take that section and say that it, that it references the unbeliever and not the believer, I think they're just totally off base. What Paul is saying at the end of chapter 7 is, we are the ones who cry out, O wretched man that I am. We are the ones who struggle. We are the ones who say, that which I would I do not. The struggle with temptation and sin is true of every believer in Christ. The conflict is only possible because the Holy Spirit is present in our lives and active in our lives. As we see in verse 24, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. And he goes on to say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. One who understands sin's tyranny and longs to be free from that tyranny. That's what he's speaking of at the end of chapter 7. So freedom in verse 2 of chapter 8 does not mean a life with no struggle with sin. And if anyone has ever taught you that somehow the Christian life is going to be struggle-free, then you've been taught incorrectly. If you are a Christian, you can count on struggle with temptation, and you can count on struggle with indwelling sin. Now here's where I want to take up Cranfield's essay and let Professor Cranfield be a help to us rather than my reinventing the wheel. What does freedom mean in the Christian's daily living? All right, we've been told that we're free. We've been set free. Isn't that what verse 2 says? The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So there's this contrast between the law that is of the Spirit, this law that leads to death, and from that law that leads to death we have been set free. Well, Paul works this out in the book of Romans in about 14 different ways. Yes, 14, but seven of them tonight, seven the next time. About 14 different ways. First of all, freedom means a real but small beginning. A real but small beginning. In the cross and the resurrection, which is, of course, complete and finished, what now is being worked out down in our hearts is only a small beginning and is not completed for any Christian in this life. It is a real beginning. It is a small beginning. 
It is a growing, growing sanctification that is not completed in this life. As Dr. Cranfield says, the completion of our liberation from the power of sin and of death is not until our death and resurrection, and that's true. But the beginning, and this is the point, the beginning is decisive. There is a radical change, and a radical change that means a radical breach with sin. And so Paul is affirming that these Christians, these Roman Christians, are people, the bonds of whose enslavement to the tyranny of self, God's Spirit has begun to loosen. Now that becomes extremely important when you continue to struggle with temptation and sin in your life and you say, what's happening? And I can barely see where things are moving. The way I like to say it to people is this. Imagine that this is a piece of graph paper. Here is the point at which you begin your Christian life. Here is the point to which God is taking you, which is heaven. Complete sanctification there. The point is, it is not a straight line on a graph from that point to that point, is it? There are ups and downs and zigs and zags, but there is progress toward the goal. There is a real beginning, though a small beginning. It also becomes very important because sometimes as we look at the lives of others with whom we have to do in, in, our, in our lives that are genuine believers in Christ and you may not see a lot of fruit, I think it's very, very important for you and for me to understand that what may be almost imperceptible growth in our eyes, in God's eyes, may be a huge leap in growth in grace. And that means we need to be extremely patient with one another as we understand that the Holy Spirit is working, bringing us to our goal on that graph line. Now, the second way in which we can speak of freedom, what freedom means in our daily living, again, Professor Cranfield is simply helping me with the organization here, is that the Holy Spirit frees us to begin to believe. I will not go back to it, but Romans 5, 1 through 5, that speaks of our justification and how that is worked out in our perseverance, I think would be an essential passage here. And simply to say, God has lavished His love on us, and He creates our faith, He sustains our faith, He increases our faith, and He renews our flagging faith. So the Holy Spirit frees us to begin to actually trust We may cry out in the midst of it all, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Faith is indeed mingled with incredulity, Calvin says in the Institutes. There is no one, however strong his faith may be, that will not sometime or other struggle with faith. Calvin has a beautiful way of putting this in the Institutes. It's as if sometimes we're in a dungeon. We seem to be surrounded by darkness. But for every true believer, there is at least this crack in which the light comes through. So the Holy Spirit frees us to begin a life of faith and to grow in that life of faith. Does that make sense to you? Yes? A third way in which Paul works out in the book of Romans this freedom and what it means in our daily Christian living is the commencement of faith brings with it the beginning of mind renewal. The beginning of mind renewal. So if you're not thinking right now, it's time to renew your minds. Let's, uh, let's start thinking. 
You see, in chapter 12, turn there, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Again, we're just surveying. We'll be looking at these passages more fully as we move along. Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, the only point I want to make from that right now is that Paul gives no encouragement to anti-intellectualism. Paul doesn't say when it comes to the Bible and when it comes to the Christian faith or when you come to a worship service, you can throw your mind in the bushes. Or when it comes to thinking through the gospel and how it applies to life, you can just not think. The renewal of the mind, bringing our thinking under the discipline of the gospel, is an essential part of what Christ has done for us and the liberating work of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand? Yes? It is essential I read in a Christian magazine a school teacher who drew a heart on one side and a brain on the other on, I guess it would be a whiteboard nowadays, I still say blackboard, on a whiteboard. So a heart on one side and a brain on the other, and she pointed to the heart and says, this is how you do theology, and she pointed to the brain and says, this is how you do science. Well, that is just unchristian. That is anti-Christian. And the Bible teaches us that we need to be, shall I use the word holistic in our thinking, in our understanding of these things, so that the mind is renewed. So when Covenant Presbyterian Church has an emphasis upon teaching, that's a right emphasis. Uh, When we say you really have to listen to sermons in order to benefit, we're not just here, we're not here at all to just entertain people, uh, there's a reason for that. And this, by the way, if I just may say in church historical terms, has been one of the great characteristics of what we call Calvinism, which is just biblical Christianity. Everywhere that the Reformed faith has gone in the history of the church, people have learned to read, and they have learned to think. Now, I'm not saying that everyone needs to be a professional theologian. Everyone needs to have the same amount of knowledge. That's not the point. The point is, if God calls you to be a Christian plumber, you need to think Christianly about it. If you're called to be a physician, you need to think Christianly about it. If you're a lawyer, you need to think Christianly about it. You need to take all of these things, homemakers, and think Christianly about being a homemaker. There needs to be mind renewal. And the great thing about this is, this is a freedom that is purchased for you by Christ. He's actually working through His Word and Holy Spirit in order to help you to learn how to think biblically. But then fourthly, the Spirit has set us free to resist sin. The Spirit has set us free to resist sin. Now we've already seen this, but it's back here in chapter 6, verses 12 through 13. Chapter 6, verses 12 through 13. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no more dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." 
So this is not something possible to do apart from the liberating work of the Holy Spirit, is it? To be set free to resist sin is only a result of the Spirit's work. Is that not right? So there is a difference between surviving sin and reigning sin. Surviving sin remains in our lives, but sin does not reign in the life of the true believers. The Spirit takes the whip out of sin's hand. So again, if I may reference Professor Cranfield, we have not been freed in the sense that sin no longer has no longer any hold on us, but we have been freed to the extent that we need no longer be sin's unresisting slaves. He says it this way, and I think this is very, very helpful. The Christian is like a country which, having been overrun and occupied by a brutal enemy, is at last being invaded by a friendly force determined to drive out the occupying power. As the inhabitants of an occupied country might rise up against the occupying power, so the Christian is now in a position at least to show on whose side his sympathies are by putting up some resistance to the tyranny of his own ego, the reign of sin over his life. In the conflict which is being waged between the Holy Spirit and the occupying power of sin, he may now begin to act as the Holy Spirit's partisan, one who seeks to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Don't you find that helpful? No? Yes? But then, also, fifthly, we are free to address God by the name of Father. One of the freedoms that is purchased for us by Christ, again, we'll say much more about it as we move in chapter 8. But notice in verse 15, chapter 8, verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And I can hardly wait to get to the verse so that we can unpack that more. But to address God as Father sincerely and seriously means striving to live as His children, to think and to say what pleases Him, and to avoid what does not. You can actually address God as Father, and you can actually begin begin to live as a son and as a daughter of God. You really can. Now, I want to stress that you can do it. The Christian can never say, I can't do this. You can do it because the Holy Spirit indwells you, because He's given you His Word. You can begin to live as a child who calls upon His Father, and who is a son, and who is a daughter. You really can, if you're a believer in Jesus. You may never say, I just can't do it. You can. And then sixthly, the Spirit of God teaches us to cry, Abba, Father, which means the Holy Spirit frees us to pray. Now, you may say that's not remarkable. It is remarkable. Do you recognize that before coming to faith in Christ, you couldn't pray? Do unbelievers pray? Well, they may call out to God, but real prayer is an offering up of our desires for things agreeable to His will. It's done in the name of Christ. It's done with the glory of God in mind. Only the Spirit of God can enable true prayer. It's really remarkable. 
As one has said, the gift of the freedom to pray and the sustaining of that freedom from day day to day are a vital part of our sanctification. The loneliness and isolation of their slavery to sin has begun to be overcome. Instead of being altogether turned in on themselves, they are free to turn towards God, to enter into conversation with Him, and more and more to live consciously in His presence. So, our prayer may be weak and may even be ignorant sometimes, but we are dependent on the Holy Spirit. As we move into the 8th chapter of Romans, I really love to see that there are three groans that are mentioned in the 8th chapter of Romans. One of those groans is mentioned in verses 26 and 27 of Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the Spirit Himself intercedes with us, for us with groanings too deep for words. The word that's used there, by the way, in verse 26 for intercede in this particular instance is a word that means somebody who helps you to take up the other end of something that's heavy. Now, you need that because you're trying to carry these tremendous burdens You're trying to to pray and to seek the Lord and to be obedient to Him, and you find them very, very heavy. The Holy Spirit is your intercessor. Christ intercedes. You have two divine intercessors, people, Christ and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit helps you with the other end. He helps you carry it. This requires some really strenuous activity on our part. Do you understand that before coming to faith in Christ, you're totally passive? It requires monergism, God's self-intervention, alone intervention. But after you are regenerated, there is an appropriate way to speak of synergism. God the Spirit works, and you work as a result of His work. (laughs) He's the one who has begun a good work in you. He will bring it to completion. And so it requires strenuous effort on our part. In chapter 15, in verses 30 and 31 of Romans, you see the Apostle Paul saying this, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together. You see that word strive? Strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the believers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. It is a serious matter, this matter of prayer. The freedom we have in prayer requires strenuous effort on the part of the freed believer in Christ. And in chapter 12 of Romans, verse 12, chapter 12 of Romans, verse 12, I showed this verse to a dear sister just this last week. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. You see how these things are brought together. Why? Because we can become careless and slack about praying. And it is essential, vitally important, to use this full freedom that God has given us to pray for the church and for our brothers and sisters in Christ. I just don't think we get it. I don't think yet we understand how vital prayer is 
to the church and to the Christian walk. You know, Dr. Um, Dr. Clowney and I were talking some years ago when he was still living, and he told me how on one occasion he had gone to London and was having tea with Dr. Lloyd-Jones. And uh, Dr. Clowney was a much younger man at the time, and he said to Dr. Lloyd-Jones, he said, you know, uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, don't you, don't you find it difficult to know when you're preaching in the Spirit? And Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, no, it's not hard at all, just like that. Well, of course, he felt, <laughs> Dr. Clowney said he felt very small, you know. And uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, look, when you're preaching in the flesh, you think, oh, it's great, it's glorious, everybody's with me, and so forth. When you're preaching in the Spirit, you're lost in worship and you're lost in praise. Then Dr. Clowney flew from London with that ringing in his ears. He flew to Austria to um, Schloss Mittersill, where there was a castle and there was a, a gathering of students, and he was to address them. And there he was with these students. Everybody was tired, worn out, utterly exhausted, and there was this huge medieval fireplace that was, that was going and just sucking the oxygen out of the room. Um, if you've ever had opportunities to preach when people are in that condition, you'd know exactly what he was feeling at the time. And so he began to exposit God's Word, just to exposit God's Word. And all of a sudden, these young people began to weep and fall upon their knees and cry out to God. And Dr. Clowney said, I've never known anything like it. It's as if the the Lord was confirming what Dr. Lloyd-Jones told me. Dr. Lloyd-Jones told him it's all about the glory of God. Dr. Clowney said, well, you know, eventually it was time for them to eat. He said, I went down to the dining room and I was the only one that went. All the students were still up there praying. That was a remarkable and wonderful thing. You see, the point is, this is what the Lord does. Prayer simply acknowledges His grip on us. We are completely dependent. And that's why your ministers say, we need your prayers. We are completely dependent on your prayers. For only the Holy Spirit can bless the preaching of the Word, and we know it. Well, seventhly, the liberation that we read of in verse 2 of chapter 8 sets us free to, to try seriously to obey the law of God. Let me repeat that. The liberation of 8.2 sets us free to try seriously to obey the law of God. The relation of the Christian to God's law is fundamentally different than that of unbelievers and how they are related to the law of God. We do not seek to obey the law in order to establish a claim on God or to be justified or to be accepted, nor do we separate the law from its goal which is Christ-centered, chapter 10, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. But we may not dispense with the guidance of the law in the Christian life when we ask the question, how may I serve my Father in heaven? Now, this is extremely important right now because there is this great debate that is raging between people, even in the PCA, in which there is a group who seems to say, and I want to be very, very careful here because they're still under discussion about precisely what is meant, but seem to move in a kind of antinomian direction. 
And they are evidently saying something to the effect, we are free from the law, there should be no emphasis upon those things, that grace frees us from an emphasis on the law. Now grace does free us from an emphasis on the curse of the law. We are freed completely from the law in that respect. We are no longer under law, we are under grace. But the point is, those who tend in an antinomian direction are looking at those who say, well, but Christians are still called to obey the law. And the tendency is for them to say, well, you're just legalists. Well, listen, folks. The law of God is holy and just and good. The law of God is still the standard It doesn't condemn me as a believer. It does not condemn me. But it's still God's standard. In chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 of Romans, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin He condemns sin in the flesh. Look at verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. In chapter 7, verse 22, the believer who struggles with temptation and sin says in verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Verse 25 of chapter 7, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ my Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And may I remind you that Jeremiah 31 tells us that the purpose for the Messiah's coming is this, I will put my law in their inward parts, and in their heart will I write it. So hearing the word of the Lord is an exercise of faith. And we come before the Lord and we say, Lord, I know that I do not keep the law in order to be accepted by you. I know I do not keep the law in order to be justified. But Lord, I thank you that you have removed from my heart a heart of stone and you have put in my heart a heart of flesh upon which you are writing your law. And so I still care, deeply care. Now as a son of a heavenly father, I care about the Ten Commandments. Now isn't this freedom the freedom to love God with all our heart, soul, and might, our minds, and our neighbor as ourselves? Christian freedom is always, let me emphasize this, Christian freedom is always church freedom. It is freedom to live together as the people of God, never apart from the people of God. Freedom to serve, but not to abuse self-indulgence. The Christian church, and especially as we think of local community, is a gift of God's grace. It is founded on the final, sufficient, justifying work of Christ. The Holy Spirit is working in us to deliver us from what... Cranfield calls hopeless egocentricity that characterizes lives outside of Christ. And we are a people of faith and of freedom. And that means a community of love. It means that we're now free to serve one another. So, I've sifted it through my own grid. 
but I hope that you do not mind that I'm allowing Professor Cranfield to uh, just help organize our thoughts. And we've seen seven freedoms that we have in Christ. Believer, you are free. There's a small but real beginning, but it's there. You have freedom to believe. You have the freedom of mind renewal, the freedom to resist sin, the freedom to call God your Father, the freedom to pray, the freedom to seek to obey God's law. And there are seven or so more to go. Now let me ask, to which of these freedoms do you need to give real attention? You might say, well, all of them, great. But maybe there is a freedom that you have in Christ that we have listed tonight, and you say, you know, really, I'm free to pray, but I'm not exercising that freedom. Or perhaps you say, I'm free to call God my Father, but I really don't have that view of God as I should. Let me encourage you, do not be discouraged at small beginnings. Because again, as God works in your life, it may be imperceptible to others and perhaps even to yourself, but it can be a great leap in the sight of God as He brings you up the graph to the appointed goal. And the great thing is, He's promised to do it. With all the struggles and all of the failings and the halting and Yes, I make progress. I seem to go back and there's up and down. God has promised He's going to bring you all the way to the appointed goal. And in that, remember, you have a freedom to pray. Because getting on your knees is going to be among the chief means that the Lord uses to bring you to that appointed place. Well, Lord willing, the other seven next time, shall we pray? Except we pray, Heavenly Father, our praise for the freedom that we have in Christ that is stressed in the book of Romans. And uh, as we review these things, and soon people will be back, we pray, Heavenly Father, that these things will so be a part of our understanding of the book of Romans that we will benefit even more from the eighth chapter as we move along in it. And Lord, help us to remember that all of our lives we are a pilgrim people living under the authority of your word. And help us to strive by all of the means of God's appointment to live in that way that pleases you as sons and daughters of the Lamb. In Jesus' name, amen.